So if you're new or visiting, kind of checking us out, my name is Tony, and I have the privilege of serving here as a shepherd and pastor in this church. If you are uh, a kid in elementary school and you want to hang out with some other elementary school kids, they'll be gathering over there. Cheryl and teacher Jeannie are over there. They'd love to hang with you a little bit. So if you're uh, in elementary school, that's where they're going. If you're in high school, we are excited to have you join us this morning. Uh, We're glad to have you here. Look at all those little guys. Good to have you guys. All right. So I want to start this morning with um, kind of an anecdote. We're in the middle of John, and we're in chapter 5. And uh, who here has traveled to another time zone? Raise your hand. All right, who here has traveled to a time zone that's like more than three hours away? Okay, more than five, nine, 13. So there we go. Nice. Lots of travelers. I remember when I was in Kenya in the Peace Corps, our village had one phone, one landline. This was like really sort of pre-cell phone or certainly cell phone reception in that part of the world. And uh, there was one landline. And if I wanted to call my parents, I'd have to go to that landline, wait in line, and then make a call and hope that I like timed it right. And I think it was about nine hours. So I didn't wake anyone up over here. And then if they called at the wrong time, you know, it would just be like that forever ringing, eerie telephone call in the middle of a village uh, that no one would answer in the middle of the night. So we would miss each other. Now, if you're familiar with time zones, maybe you've gotten woken up by someone in the middle of the night calling from halfway around the world. Maybe it's like, you know, your, your student or your son or daughter is, I remember I was in Florence studying Italian, and there were many times where I totally messed up on the time zone and I woke my parents up. And I think that's a, it's a window into what's going on here in John 5. So last week, we talked about Jesus. He goes to this pool. There's this guy who's literally not been able to walk for 38 years. And Jesus comes up to him. He heals him. It's this exciting moment, right? Or not? Because now everyone's upset that he told this guy to pick up his mat and walk away, which is a violation of Jeremiah 21, a Sabbath principle that you shouldn't carry your mat. Right? So everyone's upset that he's carrying his mat. And it's clear in this moment that Jesus and his adversaries at that moment are in different theological time zones. They're like, you should be resting. And he's like, the Father's working. They're in different time zones, which informs how they live. It informs and reveals the distance they have between them. And when we enter into this dialogue that surfaces, we actually realize there's actually a ton going on in John 5 that we're going to try and unpack today. This is how the text reads. This is John 5, uh, 16 through 29. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making him equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows them all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. 
For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but as judgment has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, any hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Okay, so that's the text we're going to lean into, and if you're sort of scratching your head right now like, holy moly, how do I follow all these things? And maybe you're thinking to yourself, when's the next time I can say truly, truly in a statement with a coworker, family member, truly, truly, I tell to you, you know, make your bed. Um, I'm sort of waiting for that moment. It hasn't come yet. But let's start at the beginning. So we're at a feast. Remember, Jesus has healed this guy. They're in their Jerusalem. People are now upset at him because he is healing on the Sabbath, asked this guy to carry his mat, and now they're upset, right? And so Jesus says to them in verse, I think it's 16, he says, hey, or 17, my father is working until now, and I'm working. Seems super intuitive to him, but this only gets him into more trouble, right? It's right after this verse in 17 where they're like, not only are you saying that you have this unique special relationship with the father, but you're making yourself equal with God. So now they go from pleasant adversaries to the text says wanting to kill him. Big deal. Now in 19 to 30, it gets really dense. So rather than sort of go verse by verse, what I'm going to do is highlight, I think, three big ideas that John is really wanting us to grasp so that we can kind of lean into it a little bit uh, without getting lost in the sort of the real specifics of John's argument, because I think it's pretty dense. Three things I want us to really see in this text. The first is this, is the dependence of the Son. Right, this really surfaces in verses 19 and 20. Jesus says to them, truly, truly, again, he says this like three times, I say to you, right, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. There's two verbs that really drive this passage and I think illustrate this dependence, this unity. You have this picture of the Son seeing. He's watching. He's attentive. He's engaged. Right? The Son is seeing. And then what you have is you have the Father showing. And you have this beautiful sense of dependence and connection and intimacy, right? Out of this place of love, the Father is showing the Son how to move in the world, how to live in the kingdom. And the Son is watching in this sort of beautiful, I think, connected, intimate, relational space. And what we see, right, is kind of like this model, you know, if you imagined... I don't know when this would happen. 18th century blacksmith, right? It's like you're a blacksmith, you pass on your trade to your son, and there's this sense of apprenticeship. 
the sense of passing on a skill, a craft. I was, uh, we were at a men's retreat yesterday, and uh, Paul Davis was talking about learning to be an architect, right? And he was saying, yeah, my dad was an architect, and I could see the blueprints out on the table, right? And learning to be an architect from his dad. And we see this also mirrored in rabbinic discipleship, this idea of what you try and do is you try and imitate your rabbi. So when you follow your rabbi, you do what your rabbi does. Right? It's not just brain transfer, like I know what my rabbi knows. You do what your rabbi does. And we see that really illustrated in this really cool way here. I remember for me, you know, I think in modern life, we're all so anxious often about like being, like learning a new thing. Do you ever have that sort of experience? Or like, I'm in a doctoral program at Fuller, and I had this opportunity to be with this professor, Joel Green, who is kind of this, he's the dean of theology at Fuller, and he's like this world-renowned theologian. And I was terrified to be in this independent study with him. It was just he and I, and I was like, I want to learn, but dude is brilliant. And so I felt like this anxiety. So I was like prepping and prepping and prepping so that I wouldn't look dumb in in the time with him. And then I get in to be with him, and he's just this really kind, loving guy, right? And it was sort of this wake-up call of like, oh, I think this is actually what the father is like to the son. Like, he's there. He actually wants him to learn and grow. But we live in this kind of evaluative culture where it's like, I think for some of us, this is very cross-cultural. We're like used to being evaluated. And so we think of God that way, like, oh, God's out there evaluating me. Like, you did that wrong, X, you know, line through it. It's like, no, 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 this model of the Father and the Son becomes the model that we then follow in our following of Jesus. We'll get more to that later. I think that's the first major thing, though, this idea of the Son's dependence and connection with the Father. The second is this, that God is the God of life. This comes up numerous times in this passage. And truthfully, it's come up throughout John so far. So if you've been in this journey with us, you see that God is the God of life. John 1 in the prologue, right? Who is Jesus? He is the word made flesh. He is the life and light of the world. We see this also, John three sixteen. What happens? Jesus comes, right? He loves the world and offers it life, even eternal life. Life that is both long in longevity, but also high in quality. It's not just you live forever, but are bored, right? It's actually awesome life. John 4, Jesus meets a woman at a well, and he offers her living water, right? So that the water can bubble up in her to become life, eternal life. John 5, Jesus meets a man at a pool. He says, rise up, get up, which is the same word used in the New Testament for the resurrection. So he's saying, hey, go from death to life. From from chapter one through chapter five, God is a God of life. We see this most pointedly here in verse 21. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Right? The son follows the example of the father He brings life where there is death. I think this operates on two levels. It operates on a spiritual level. So it operates in this place of death where we feel trapped and are dying. Jesus wants to sow life so that we can flourish. It also operates on a physical level. What we'll see is God literally raises Jesus from the dead. Jesus literally (coughs) raises Lazarus from the dead. 
Verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Right? John 1, what do we see? The Father and the Son together, they create all things. They create life. They are the source of life. So it makes sense, right? The Father has life in himself. The Son has life in himself. And then what does Jesus do with the woman at the pool? He gives living water so she can have life in herself that bubbles up within her. God is the God of life. Now, I think up to this point, we can kind of like roll with that. We're like, okay, cool. Intimate, beautiful relationship between the Father and the Son. This God of life, we support that. We like life. Now, the third thing I'm going to talk about is I bring up with a little trepidation because in our culture, this is like, I don't know, really sensitive. uh, And I totally get that. I I bring it up with a little trepidation. But I think we need to say also a word here about judgment, right? One of the things in this passage is this idea of judgment. And what does it really mean? Comes up three different times, verse 24, verse 27, and verse 29. Now, I think the most helpful frame of this is, um, is this. So in verse 27, uh, there's this reference to the Son of Man. Now, if you're familiar with the Hebrew Bible, with the First Testament, what you'll notice is that in the book of Daniel, in chapter 7, there's this story, uh, an image of this guy called the Son of Man. And what he is going to do is he is going to come and establish God's kingdom on earth, right? And he's been given authority to do that, authority to judge and authority to lead God's people on earth and execute and establish the kingdom of God, right? And what we see in this passage is that Jesus is that person coming to bring this kingdom. Now, one of the problems, though, is that if we just sort of take that independently, it can kind of get lost. It's like, okay, cool, Daniel 7, wait, what chapter was that? You know, And we kind of lose this son of man idea. And I think what we need to do to understand judgment in its proper context is actually look at it within the overall arc of the story of the scriptures. So I'm just going to do that real quick. I'll do the quick snapshot, the cliff note version. You know, it's a long book. I get it. You know, God creates all things. He forms humanity, right, in his image. They're in this garden. He says, hey, there's a f- you can do a lot of things. Just don't do this. Don't eat from this tree, right? But instead of listening to God, what they do is they go their own way. They listen to their own sort of, I think this is a better way, right? They do it. What that leads to is exile from the garden. They're kicked out of the garden. Second, God doesn't give up on them though, right? He calls a man named Abraham and through Abraham, he says, you know what? Through your offspring, I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. And through them, right? That's the people of Israel. But the people of Israel, again, they say, yeah, God, I know you want us to do these things, but we think we know it better than you do. We think we can rock it, you know? So we're going to do our own thing. What does that lead to? Again, exile, right? The Babylonians come in, they destroy stuff. People go into exile. Now Jesus comes in the first century. The Jews are still living in exile. They're in their homeland, but they're ruled by Rome. They're in exile. Jesus is coming to bring a new exodus, bring new freedom. So Jesus comes, he lives with people, right? He dies, he's resurrected, he goes with the Father, sends the Spirit, so we're sort of in this time, right? The Spirit is with us, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and one day he's going to come as the Son of Man to establish the kingdom on earth. And that that is where judgment happens, 
right? So judgment is the kingdom is coming. God wants to make all things new. He wants to take away evil and injustice and wrong. Like if you're in high school right now, justice is this big thing, right? All for justice. You want to rock justice. Part of justice is deciding like who's wrong, who's right, and making decisions. Well, Jesus has that role because what he wants to do is establish a kingdom where there's peace, harmony, love, where things are awesome. But in order to do that, he needs to take evil, sin, and bad stuff out of the world. Just as an example. So a few years ago, I was in Calcutta. And uh, one of the reasons I was there is I have some, some connections with IJM, International Justice Mission. And what they do is they free people from slavery. And so I was invited to go there to visit a home. Now, this home was for youth that had been trafficked. And what happened is the Indian government decided, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take these people out of their homes because their family members were trafficking them put them into an institution. But this institution functionally becomes a jail. Because what happens now at this point is the people, they're trying to get them out of these super dysfunctional environments where they're being trafficked. But what happens is the justice system pushes off the trial of the perpetrators, puts the victims in a house where now they're protected but functionally incarcerated. That when I arrived, they had been there years, no trial. And they're asking me to fund a school the organization I was with, the church I was with, to fund a school so that at least they could get an education. That is how messed up parts of our world are. Now multiply that by the thousands and the hundreds of thousands, and we begin to scratch the surface of the dysfunction, evil, and wrong in our world. And when Jesus says the Son of Man is coming to make all things new, to bring his kingdom, he has to deal with those things. He has to make decisions on, okay, so what are we going to do in the complexity of our world with the injustices, the wrong, the evil, the sin? What do we do? I personally am a fan of God's justice because I want those situations to be no more. But I think some of us, we think, okay, we like justice. Totally, totally rock that. We love it. But what about this whole thing about judgment? And then there's like this hell piece, right? That's like more personal. Like, how does that sort of work into this, right? And if you're like in your 20s, teens or 20s, pretty much guarantee you someone in your life has said to you, if you are a follower of Jesus, like, dude, explain this to me because this is, seems super messed up right? Is that true? Yeah. Jackson's like, yep. <laughs> Sorry. Totally outed you. Right? So what do you do with that, right? If Jesus is going to bring judgment, what do we, what do, we do with that? Well, one of the things, Jesus used this word hell in the New Testament, and he's referring to a place called Gehenna, and which is in the first century, it's a fiery garbage pit area. But in the past was a place where uh, Israelites would actually go and worship this other God and they would actually sacrifice children to this other God to appease this other God. Horrible injustice. Horrible injustice. 
And what Jesus is talking about is he's talking about a separation that happens where the kingdom of God is established and then outside of the kingdom in a place called Gehenna, there will be a separation so that this new kingdom he establishes, right? The people in it are protected from the evil that is outside of it, right? Because hell functionally is the absence of God, right? Heaven is the presence of God. So when we think about the kingdom of heaven, what we're thinking about is being with God, in harmony with God, in one another, without the impact of sin and evil. Hell is functionally, God is not there. And what that means is that the source of all life, goodness, beauty is not there. But we operate sort of as modern people with this sort of image in our head, sort of that flows out of the, often the Middle Ages. And we think of sort of hell like this, deep underground, there's this God black ops site where he is forever waterboarding and torturing and doing all of these horrible things to people. And people are there, they're saying like this, you know, like, we're sorry, we'll change. And there's this like deep disturbing laugh, like, ha ha, you know, no way. And then what he does, right, is he leaves. He has a big padlock. It's underground, so he comes out to the surface. There's this huge padlock, and he locks it from the outside, and people are in wanting to get out. It's kind of, Tim Keller says it this way. He sort of paints this picture, and then he says this. This is a caricature that misunderstands the nature of evil. And yet is often one of the things when we think of judgment, that is like the first image we go to. And if you're in high school, if you're in middle school, if you're in college, I guarantee you that is the image that the friends you're around have in their mind. And they're saying, I will never believe in that God. And the point is that's a misrepresentation of who God is. No one is padlocked in a torture chamber down underground in hell. We just need to say that. Right? Hell is the absence of God. Heaven is the presence of God. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He said, there are two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God. And those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. God allows people choice. C.S. Lewis also says this. He says that hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. The greatest monument to human freedom. Right, God, sometimes we think, oh, God, if he, if he was fair, everyone would go to heaven. And I say, well, what do you want God to do? Do you want some sort of horrific post-apocalyptic movie where God lobotomizes people? I'm serious. To me, that would violate the will and character, mercy and grace of God. God allows people to choose. Tim Keller says this, no one ever asked to leave hell. The very idea of heaven seems a sham to them. Heaven can't exist. This kingdom thing, that, come on. That's not real. I'm going to do my own thing. Okay, God says. He's coming in the kingdom. He wants people to join him, but he allows people to choose. Sometimes we have this image of like God in heaven stomping and angry, sort of like a tantruming two-year-old, like, stop doing this, you know. That is not who God is. God is a loving father. And as a part of this love, 
He brings life to our planet through the Son of Man as he brings in the kingdom and wants to make all things new. But in order to get to that reality, sin, injustice, wrong have to be removed from the center of creation. Hence, judgment. It's a threshold in order to get to the good things that God wants to bring. All right, one last thing about this, and then we'll sort of move on. But I think sometimes at that moment we think, you know, in a world where we distrust power and the abuse of it, right? Because we've seen power abused tons and tons of times. And so we're afraid of it. And we think ultimately, like, the locus of judgment should be internal to ourselves. That functionally, judgment works like this in modern society right now, at least among my age demographic and younger. Something like this. I have a true north. If I violate the direction of my personal true north, then I can judge me, but no one else. That's kind of how judgment functions uh, among, like, people my age and younger, in general. But this is the thing. That's not the biblical description. And the truth is, like, as I've reflected on this passage, sort of just very aware of my own brokenness, my own sort of failure in trying to follow Jesus, and the notion that, like in the New Testament, it says that leaders will be judged more harshly, right? It's like, all right, you know, I feel a little intimidated by that personally, right? Like, I'm not all that holy. I try the best I can, uh, but often I fall on my face. So it sort of makes me a little nervous when I think of Jesus as judge, right? But then I think about who have we learned about over the last few weeks? Who, we, you know, when we think about the person of Jesus, what do we think about? Made me think about there's a woman at a well who her entire community has judged her. Her entire community says, we are not going to be with you. And what does Jesus do? He meets her in the middle of the day when everyone else had judged her, and he says, here, have life. I think about a man at a pool, and his entire community had judged him unworthy of help for 38 years. But what does Jesus do? He offers him life. If I'm going to be judged by anyone, I think I've wanted to be Jesus. I have never seen a kinder, more gracious, and loving example of a human being than Jesus. If I'm going to be judged by someone, I want it to be the guy who met that woman, crossed racial and ethnic barriers to be with her met a man at a pool and healed him before that man even knew his name. So the question is, we see in this passage that you see this beautiful dependence of the Father and the Son. You see that God wants to bring life and we have this sort of picture of judgment that I've hopefully sort of reframed in a bit that at least, I don't know, maybe you're angry, that's okay. You can sort of chat with me, yell at me later if you want. Uh, or maybe it's helpful. Maybe it's a helpful reframe. Or maybe you're just like, I have no idea what just happened. Uh, and that's okay too. Uh, a couple great resources just as we're there. Uh, if you're sort of wanting a modern take on that, Joshua Ryan Butler has this great book called Skeletons in God's Closet. Uh, sometimes we're like, I don't want to think about that. It's a skeleton in God's closet I don't want to talk about. I don't want to open that closet. Great book. Uh, Tim Keller has a chapter called The Reason for God on Hell. Very good. Uh, And if you're like more academic and you want like, you feel like my treatment was a little like surface level, 
uh, Stephen H. Travis has Christ in the Judgment of God, which is a super academic, brilliant sort of look at the New Testament in particular uh, and who God is revealed there. So there's a couple examples. You can look at them after if you're like a voracious reader and you'd like that. Anyway, take a look. All right, so the question though today, right now, is how does this then translate into modern life? Like, okay, so that's sort of the text. That's what Jesus is getting at. So, so now what? <laughs> you know, great ideas. What do I do? I think first is this, that the father's love and the son's dependent, their dependence actually is a model for us to follow in our relationship with God and relationship with Jesus. Right? You have this beautiful harmony, this beautiful flow. You see, Jesus is looking to the father for an example, and the father loves the son. Right? And he wants to show him what he has. And I just wonder today, like, is that how you view your relationship with God? Do you see it as sort of this beautiful, intimate communion of the Father revealing his love to you? And you, in this sort of profound connection and attentiveness to the Father, do you find yourself then flowing into life with how you live? Does that inform how you live? My three questions I got on this maybe to sort of tease it out a little bit. First is this, like, do you live with this sense of attentiveness to God? Does that inform how you live your life? Do you find yourself looking to the scriptures, looking to the Father and saying, hey, how do I do this thing called life? Or do you kind of find yourself like, I got this. I've done this for years. I know how to do the Christian walk. Or do you find yourself open to God leading you, shaping you, guiding you? Is there a living, dynamic interchange? Two, do you find yourself actually experiencing the Father's love? One of the things I find that in the Christian life is tend, we tend to go towards behavior modification. Like, all right, I'm just going to stop doing these behaviors, but we dislocate it from the Father the intimacy and love of the Father. But what Jesus is saying is there's this beautiful, intimate connection with the Father and it's out of that place that flows our actions in the world. I think one of the ways you can say if like you're living in more of a behavior modification world or this sort of intimate connection world is when was the last time you experienced the Father's love? And then three is, I think particularly um, I don't know, maybe West Coast people, we have this sort of disconnection often between our actions and the love of God. So we say, oh, I love God. And then you say, so what did you do last week? And do you have any connection between your love of God and the life you live? You know, do you disconnect those? You know, there's sort of this way in our world where we talk about being versus doing. I just want to be with God or I just want to do things for God. And it's like, no, no, no. What we see in the life of Jesus is that from a place of being flows doing. As we're with the, in the presence of the Father, watching the Father, our actions flow. Do you see that in your life? You know, are you in the same time zone? You know, God's at work. God's like on your street, meeting your neighbor, hanging out with your coworker, and you're just like sleeping in a, you know, sleeping through it all. 
Are you in the same time zone? Two, and I think this really is sort of speaks into our present moment, that Jesus is judge, not you and not me. I don't know about you, but this, as a 39-year-old, I find this to be literally the most sort of judgmental and divided season in our nation's history that I have personally lived through. Some of you have lived longer. You correct me if there's like, well, in this date, you know, it's way worse. But I, it is super divided and judgmental to me. And the truth is, I think the church can kind of get on that judgmental bandwagon. And we end up reflecting more of the world than Jesus's judgment. Right? Jesus invites us to love. He is the judge. But sometimes I think we take responsibility for Jesus's role, thinking we're going to get on Jesus's little judging seat and be like, all right, this is what we're going to do. This is who you are. That's not our role. Our role is to look to the Father from the Father's actions, live out our life and allow Jesus to be the one who judges. It's not you, it's not me. Do you find yourself assuming responsibility for judgments, evaluations that aren't yours? Maybe even just quite practically, is there someone right now in your life that you find yourself evaluating, condemning in your own mind and heart Remember, Jesus is the judge, not you, not me. And then lastly, I just want to say, I think the third way it translates into modern life is like, who do we choose? Right, we talked about judgment as sort of this, potentially this future reality when the Son of Man will come and establish his kingdom. But today we are also offered the choice to be a part, to experience the life that God offers. Right, last week we watched as Jesus went to this man at a pool and said, do you want to be healed? And I think today he comes into this place and he says, I'm here. Do you want to experience life? Do you want to experience healing? Do you want to experience the intimacy, love, and redemption, the cleansing of the Father? And the Spirit is on the move. God is on the move. God is up to stuff. Do we want to be a part of that? God is here right now inviting us to experience life, eternal life, today. What do we choose? Where are we at? When you come into this room today, where are you at in your relationship with Jesus? Where are you at in your journey of faith? To sort of help us in this process, before we enter worship, I thought maybe we would celebrate communion together as a way of remembering the love and the sacrifice, just the beauty of who Jesus is. So it was a week of Passover, and um, Jesus was at dinner with his disciples. And it was the night before he was going to die. And they're kind of laying on these blankets, on these pillows, and he picks up some bread and he says, takes it, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he says, this is my body, just broken for you. Take it and eat it. 
And then he takes this cup and he says, this, is, this cup is my blood was shed for you and for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink it. And he does this as a way to say, hey, remember the extent of my love and my sacrifice for you. Now, as we come up today and we participate, I'm going to say something like, you know, the body of Jesus, and you'll grab a piece and say the blood of Jesus, and you'll take that piece and you'll dip it in here, and then you'll, you'll eat it. And it's a way of saying, all right, God, I receive your love this morning. I choose you. And we're going to do it where everyone will kind of come down this middle aisle. We'll have four different people serving. And it's a way for us as a community, too, to say, hey, together, Jesus, we choose you. And if this morning you're here and you're like, I don't know if I choose Jesus, but it's awkward to sit in my chair alone. I say this, come into my little line and I'll just say a blessing over you as a way of saying, hey, thank you, thank you for participating. I want to bless your process this morning, being here, being present. But if you're not ready to choose Jesus, that's okay. We want you here. So that's a way you can kind of participate in the flow of the morning. Uh, I want to invite the worship team up. So as we shift into worship, uh, I just want to give us a second just to maybe slow down and just be present to who God is. And God invites us into this amazing and beautiful and intimate relationship. He invites us to experience life. He invites us to choose him. But he does give us that freedom. So maybe this is a moment just to kind of do a little soul searching and sort of be in this place of, all right, Jesus, this is who I am. And maybe just identify, maybe there's something that's getting in the way of your relational connection with Jesus today. And just say, all right, God, I choose you. Take this thing that's getting in the way. I want to follow you. Just remember that the grace and mercy of God is always greater than the sin you bring into this world and into this room. God is greater. His kingdom is greater than the evil of this world. God is always bigger than the fears and the guilt and the shame that we carry. And he wants to know us more.